Mason and Sean here, ahead of the episode. Hi, Sean. Hey, Mason. We wanted to get out ahead of this uh, episode to make a statement. Um, We're recording this on the day of the mass shooting in Boulder, um, which is just a terrible and horrific coincidence that only happens in the country that we live in. Um, But we are recording this to recognize the... uh, shooting in Atlanta that took the lives of six Asian American women. And it is a topic that is incredibly important. Uh, It's a topic that's brought a lot of very important conversations finally uh, to the forefront. It's a topic that is revealing a lot of very important conversations that need to be had. And it's a topic that hits particularly close to home here. Yep. For me, it's like a culmination of lived experiences. And it's not even if I've been called, you know, yelled a slur and thrown rocks at my face before, but it's just the little things that peel away at your soul that happen because of white supremacy, that happen because of racism. And the most frustrating thing for me watching this unfold on the internet is so many people's bizarre insistence that this is not about race, that this is just about a sex addiction because the shooter said so. Um, And whatever cockamamie reason you may have for that, this this is a situation that is no doubt about racism and any refusal or willful misunderstanding about it not being so is just perpetuating more of the problems. Right. Sex addiction is not an actual thing. It does not exist in any medical handbook. And what this is, plain and simple, is another underlining of the fact that we as a nation are culturally and foundationally deeply racist and deeply dangerous, and we have historically and continue to um, systematically fail to not just deal with it, but even fundamentally recognize it. May is AAPI month. We were already planning here on the show to dedicate the month to a series of episodes looking at um, the Asian American experience through art and music and and film. And while that was already an important thing to cover, the situation in Atlanta has really underlined that it continues to be important and is only growing more important. I am so grateful that Mason has brought me onto this project and given me an opportunity just to talk about art in a space and in a realm that I don't think many queer Asian voices get to live or exist in. Um, And I can't wait to share with you um, more stories about the Asian American experience that I don't think get the serious treatment that they deserve. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hershey. It's our March edition of the Meaning What Movie Club. This month, we're talking about the 2014 Iranian-American vampire western, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. 
Welcome to Meaning What, specifically the Meaning What Movie Club. I'm here with Chris and Sean as always, I guess. Hello, hello. Hey, y'all. So it's March. March is Women's History Month. I, I wanted this month to choose a film that was written and directed by a woman. And the first one that came to mind for whatever reason was the... 2014 horror western A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, written and directed uh, by Anna Lily Amirpour. And I wanted to do this one because I hadn't seen it in a while. And I think one thing that is kind of becoming the, let's say the challenge of this is is to find a film that at least one of us hasn't seen before or Maybe that all of us haven't, um, but that feels like it, it, you know, deserves some conversation. And neither of you had seen this movie before, correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah. I had seen it, oh, probably about a year or two after it came out. This movie really struck me because it's kind of a weird film. It's an American film made by an Iranian-American filmmaker, born in the UK, grew up in the US, is talked about as an American filmmaker, but it is it is a foreign language film shot here in the US, and it traffics in a number of different, particularly American film tropes. It is Western, it is rockabilly, it is horror in like a B-grade style, right? It, it references like Christopher Lee Dracula and and also Nosferatu and it also like references the spaghetti western which is a complex genre in and of itself and it sort of references the American story of anti-heroism and that sort of thing so I wanted to revisit it um, having not seen it since and I thought that this would be a really excellent opportunity for that so before we start the discussion maybe a sort of quick overview of what the film is. It follows, well, who was the main character of this movie? Oh, that's a loaded question. Yeah. (laughs) Why can't it be two, I guess? I mean, but also someone is the titular character here, right? So. Right. So the, the titular character is the girl, which is how she is credited. Sort of an unnamed narrator almost. But the plot really follows a young man whose father is a struggling heroin addict and the film is about how his story intersects with the girls the girl is a vampire um, who feeds on bad men men who are sort of in classic morality of filmmaking bad people her first victim is a is a drug dealing pimp and sort of carries that sort of theme for her her victims throughout. So she's sort of this anti-hero kind of character. And then that creates tension when she has this burgeoning romance with with our young main character. And that's pretty much the plot of the film. It's super simple. It's pretty straightforward, right? It is like classic, again, B-grade movie plot, right? Like mm-hmm. it has the boy meets girl thing. It has the vampire. It has, you know... <laughs> all of that punchy pop stuff it's it's not on the surface it's not terribly deep i think where the depth comes from is and we'll talk about this the way it's shot and the sort of things that it tries to achieve in its in the choices around its storytelling and around its the way it was written and the and the way that the sets are dressed and you know how it kind of plays with 
the sort of national identity of like what is an American film and what's a foreign film, right? And what is sort of an art house film and, and what's a fine art film. And then also like who gets to own what stories, right? You know, what stories are universal and, and, and what changes when you take these stories that you are used to seeing in told one way and, and put them in a, a different set of quantifiers. So let's talk about this movie. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing that struck me was how it, especially as it starts, it feels like a weird parody of America. Just even the way, like, those first shots of those suburban houses are, like, this doesn't feel quite real. This feels like a weird wooden set. And our first shots of our main character, Arash, is so James Dean light. I, yeah. I wrote that down. Yeah, I was like, oh, yes. James Dean, 100%. <laughs> I did not mind it. I did follow him on Instagram immediately after the movie. And then that that facade of a James Deanism immediately crumbles as you realize like what his life is like and what the circumstances he's sitting in is. He he is the classic I, I you know, he's he is such a young man, right? Like like he he is like black Levi's and boots and the white t-shirt and he's got the leather jacket he looks like a james dean copy right like yeah um right but he is so deeply by nature like not james dean cool right, mm-hmm. right. He, he's, he's super grounded and and like it feels real in that he is the kid that like worships james dean and is not james dean you know mm-hmm. um he, he's a good kid right He's driving this ostensibly he, right. He's driving this Thunderbird, and he's, uh, which he paid for. You know, he worked until he he could buy it, and and he's a good kid, and and like trying to do the right thing, and trying to be a good person, and trying to be a good son mostly. Yeah, yeah. And then the chaotic agent of our of the girl kind of upends everything. <laughs> but even even before that, I I mean, I think that. In a lot of ways, the central conflict of the film, at least from his perspective, is his conflict with his father, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Who is a heroin addict um, who cannot afford his habit. And the inciting incident is his dealer coming to their house and, you know, demanding payment. Of course, it's not there. It can't be made. And, and so the dealer takes the, the prized Thunderbird. And that is sort of what gets the ball rolling on our plot. Right. But then things intersect. We have our drug dealer Pimp and his interactions with, for some reason, I guess painted as the town hooker. If you want, if you really want to, Ati. Yeah, yeah, Ati. Yeah, I don't know how else to characterize it because we see multiple characters turn to her for her services. Yeah. And but we see the first glimpse of the girl, and she seems to be following them, which results in. The girl, I guess, seducing, not even, just more like existing as a woman late at night, which I feel like is commentary in itself. And the pimp dealer brings her back to her place and she kills him in the most delightful B-movie way. I was like, she's going to bite the finger. She's going to bite the finger. And she did it! (laughs) Real quick, a a note on names. Um, as we are sort of struggling to pull them, this film does something really interesting where everybody is named except for the girl. Um, yes. They all have names, but you get them once and right. maybe. Yeah. And so it, it creates this like 
real deep uncertainty where I, like I was running into situations where a character would, would say another character's name and I would have, you know, I, my brain had assigned it to somebody else. Um, so I was, I, I personally had trouble like keeping track of, of those individual characters. Yeah. And in the credits, if you see it, it'll be like Ati in quotes, insert archetype. So like she almost, it seems like she almost wanted us to just view them as archetypes. Right. Character names for the sake of character names. Yeah. So we don't we don't know that the girl is a vampire when she seduces Saeed, the Mm-mm. the drug dealing pimp, who is like above and beyond a trope, right? Like he Parody. has shitty tattoos and like sex the word sex tattooed across his throat. Yeah, not only is sex written on like his collarbones, but also the script in Farsi on his temple says pimp apparently <laughs> subtlety. And so it's also this idea that depending on the language of the audience that interacts with the film, they'll have a different interpretation of what's going on. And the same thing is that, you know, it takes place in this fictional city named bad city, but that's bad city in English In Farsi. I believe it's wind city or a windy city or something like that. And so there's like, this this kind of kind of goes in line with something that we'll most definitely talk about further later on is kind of this duality of this film kind of existing in two different worlds simultaneously that is American but also not American at the same time and can be interpreted in either or both ways depending on the viewer's uh, schema and interaction with the world prior to viewing it. Mm-hmm. Right, and it really makes me wish that I personally knew more about Iranian filmmaking in particular Mm -hmm. um, because like it's clear that this film is trafficking in sort of tropes and influences from from that as well as sort of American filmmaking Mm -hmm. which is where it's sort of identity tension comes from that I that is Mm -hmm. what for me makes it so intriguing absolutely and and so we have this example of Saeed who you know, walks past like he is set up as an absolutely bad guy. Yeah. Like from the get go, orgy of evidence. Yeah, yeah. Can I mention something real quick though? So Saeed, you know, we have all these, all this evidence that he's a real bad dude, and a lot of it is done verbally, even though there's not much dialogue in the film. Right, and that's something that Amarpour is known for for having very sparse dialogue, but something I found really, really funny is in the scene where Saeed and the girl go back to his apartment, there's the briefcase on the table and on top of it is a duck hunt gun. (laughs) Like for no reason. And I just thought that was really, really funny because I had, I sat there and I was like, is that a fucking duck hunt gun? Like, and it showed it a couple of times. Like, yeah, it's definitely a duck hunt gun. And so it's like, is this guy really as bad as he seems? Or is that like a little Easter egg or, yeah. you know, is that like some kind of like little, like lean towards like the quote unquote Americanization of the film, you know, combined with, uh, oh gosh, the, um, like the Shador, the cloak that the girl wears. There's like all this like definitively like, you know, non-American visuals while simultaneously there are all these like older 
80s or 50s or 70s visuals that kind of like fit make it kind of sit in like this little american bubble so i just i had to mention that before i forgot <laughs> well and and on a similar note you know it, in that same scene like we're seeing his his living situation which is like also over the top right like oh yeah tiger print and taxidermied everything yeah um but there is a like 16 year old stoner's bedroom poster of a marijuana leaf behind a drum set <laughs> right <laughs> a fucking drum which set. is just like the least cool thing possible you know and, and like that i remember that striking me the first time i saw this film and then i just sort of like forgot about it and then i saw it again and i was like oh yeah wow not cool this is how you know i'm a bad motherfucker right <laughs> i got this marijuana poster in this 500 hundred dollar <laughs> drum kit Right. I I got this at a head shop. When I'm not listening to electronic music, I listen to Grateful Dead. <laughs> that's what stoners do. And then he has to do three lines of cocaine, lifts of weights before he gets ready for coitus. And you're like, mm, very seductive, dude. It's totally like the 16-year-old jock who, who doesn't know what he's doing and is trying to seduce, yeah. you know, and, and like right. can, can kind of play it off. Out and out on the street, but then gets back to his bedroom, and it becomes really clear that he has no idea what the fuck he's yeah, doing. Yeah, once he know? doesn't have you know the power or what he yeah. uses the power over, uh, you know the object of it that's in his vicinity, then all of a sudden it's just like, all right, let me do three reps of these ten pound <laughs> weights and show this show this person that I mean business. Ooh, you impressed. <laughs> the the whole dynamic of that scene is is really i think a really great example of a writer and director's style though right like mm -hmm. the way that it's set up it, it it is a reference to like the vampiric lore of suggestion and and of right. the requirement of the vampire being invited into your home mm -hmm. and all of that but it, she is completely silent yeah right and we don't know that she's a vampire at this point either Right. Until the fangs pop out, which was such a cool thing. I love that you couldn't tell until she's like, I'm a bite you bitch. And then they just like pop out. Right. Yeah. And I thought that that was really beautifully done because it, it is one of it is an excellent example of showing and not telling. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and it's also the first time you know, like watching it back, like you can kind of see it. And, and it, it's set up that this guy like feeds off of that power right he's really set up as that character and this is the first time though that we actually see him without any power and it's right there on the sidewalk mm -hmm. like he sees this woman and he must invite her back and he sort of trips over himself verbally as he's trying to say something impressive but it it just keeps going his way and so so he rolls with it and it sort of gets what he wants until she bites his finger off and feeds it to him which was just, yeah, that was so delightful. So fun. That is camp in the best way possible. Very Tarantino. Oh, very. Yeah. 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 But with a touch of class, because this film is all in black and white. Mm. Right. <laughs> Which I wondered how that sort of affects uh, scenes like that. You know, it would have been a very different scene if it was in Technicolor or if it was in contemporary sort of digital color, right? Yeah. You know, because there's a lot of blood, yes. and it's fairly grotesque. But when it's in 
black and white, you know, it's just like, are they using chocolate sauce? You know, <laughs> and, and it, it sort of it doesn't tone it down, but it makes it like watchable in a in a way. Yeah, right? and it, it's also kind of this classic air to it, I guess. Right, and like de-emphasizing the violence as like the point of what's going on in front of you necessarily. It's not the point. So after this first feeding frenzy, she exits the guy's apartment or house and runs into our um, our protagonist, Arash, and they have this moment where they like they make eye contact. Arash has, has stolen... I guess we should talk about yeah. that too, right? Yeah, so like after he has the car taken from him, it shows him like trimming these just like masses of hedges with like the smallest set of shears which i thought was and a broken hand oh yeah that's right i forgot yeah he broke his hand from punching the wall i didn't realize he had broke it until like later whenever he got a cast he's like but why is he getting a oh that's right okay he, he punched a wall and then there's the the young princess lady whose name i can't remember because once again is like said once and she's shada Shada, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which I thought was like a really interesting scene. I need you. Yeah. To fix my TV. <laughs> yeah. It's set up as like this um a seduction or something, right? And and it's it's totally prime like she's there in like a nightgown talking on the phone. And her nose drop scars. <laughs> right. She has the bandage on her nose and she's talking about the party that she's going to and and like like a actual like over the top mm-hmm. temptation, right? They have the conversation of, you know, he says, "Shouldn't you go somewhere else? It, it would be a scandal if your parents knew that knew you were alone in this room with a boy." And she's just the fuck, dude, right? <laughs> and then he compulsively steers a set of her earrings that he's been eyeing. Yeah, um, I think that from I was doing a little bit of reading before we started recording today. I believe that he stole the earrings to use in exchange for payment so that we could get his car back. Right. Which I didn't get. I, I thought it was just like, well, these will be worth something. Right. Right. It's hard to conceptualize earrings that small as worth a car like that. You know what yeah. I mean? But we're not rich. <laughs> Who knows? And I mean, it, it creates the implication, too, of that's why he's dismissing her, right? Yeah. Like, Like the scene... It's kind of complicated, mm-hmm. right? Because it's set up as this this guy who has punched a brick wall in anger. That is his most masculine moment, and it breaks his hand. <laughs> Sorry. And then he's presented with, for lack of a better term, he's presented with this beautiful young woman who is trying to seduce him, and he, he turns her away. And I, I think, like, the initial reading of that scene is, well, he's a gentleman, right? Like, he's, he's not a bad guy. But then... When he eyes the earrings, like, oh no, he dismissed her so that he could yeah. steal her earrings. And then that realization sets up the later scene in the club. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, again, in a very in very few pieces, we have an incredibly complicated character, you know, and, and we're sort of left because the, the core question about this movie is like, are these are these men good or bad? Right. And I think particularly for him, for Arash. It's not an easy question, right? Right. There's no dichotomy there. So after, I guess this sort of leads into where he goes with it, because after they, after he and the girl have 
Christmas moment outside of Saeed's apartment, he goes inside and he finds Saeed is dead and takes Saeed's stuff. Briefcase full of cash, drugs, a hacky sack. Yeah. His keys. Yeah. yeah. Hacky sack, yes. yeah. Important things. Very important. Leaves the uh, duck hunt gun. No, the duck hunt gun wasn't there anymore. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I wonder if she has it. <laughs> Just in case. Yeah. Well, um, and then he starts selling heroin. <sighs> to everyone but his dad. Yep. To everybody but his dad. Which I thought was, you know, not to equivocate these two films, I think that they are on very, very different strata. But I thought that that was an interesting parallel to Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, in that it sort of brings up similar questions of like, the morality of doing something like selling drugs. Yeah. It is for Arash in this film and for Juan in Moonlight, it is a way to sort of achieve a lifestyle that they're seeking. And, and in a lot of ways, it is a very practical sort of career decision. Yeah. Right. For lack of a better term. And while it doesn't carry the same weight, I feel like they just sort of blow it over in this movie I, I just thought that that was kind of an interesting parallel to our last movie clip. Yeah, pick. I think the one of the main differences is that because the focus is so much less on Arash than it is on Chiron and the characters that influence Chiron in Moonlight, we don't really get that much of a window into Arash's reasons for getting into the drug trade outside of just an opportunistic element. Right. We don't really see him see any benefits of his, this change in lifestyle outside of later on when we see his father going into withdrawals and the kind of psychosis that comes with that. And this kind of, accessibility to heroin and the finances to be able to continue to medicate him, keeping him in check and kind of making it so that he's not a nuisance that destroys the house kind of deal. And that seems to be the only real tangible benefit that Arash has to transitioning from this helper slash gardener slash TV repairman to heroin and ecstasy dealer. Right. He doesn't even need to buy a new car because he gets his Thunderbird back. Yeah. And his wardrobe doesn't change at all. So, no. It's like, uh, there, I remember there's an episode of Doug. Do y'all remember the show Doug? Yes. There's an, oh, there's yeah, an episode of, course. of Doug where everybody starts wearing the green sweater vest and the cargo shorts that Doug always wears. And he's like, guys, I was the first one to do this. You know, he's like a, like a history, like, oh, I was wearing this before. It was cool. And then he, like, goes into his bedroom and shows all these people like Skeeter and everybody else, what his closet looks like. And it's just rows of the sweater vest and rows of the shorts. And people are like, you're such a fucking loser. Get out of here. <laughs> and so I'm just picturing Arash just has like a closet full of like crisp white t-shirts, <laughs> you know, like two pairs of boots in care in case one gets dirty, you know, right. Jeans. Right. One pair of yeah. Levi's. Arash wants for nothing except for his father to stop being a fucking idiot. Right. <laughs> Please. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then we get some, like, before our next major event, bits and pieces of interstitial 
interactions where essentially our our town hooker intersects with the girl a little bit when she like turns down a john and the our girl just follows them just for fun and then i guess it, here's where like it feels like maybe it's not as clear if she's the the consumer of bad men with that weird moment then she like stalks a little boy in town who we kind of see throughout the story as kind of a weird observer and outsider this whole scene where she questions him are you a good boy yeah don't lie to me and keeps threatening him and you're like the fuck is this he hasn't done anything wrong like the the killing of the drug dealer we get it he's he's bad news moral decision whatever but like what is this and in many ways, it feels weird because the boy has been painted as good, loosely at least. Right. And she eventually, she it feels like she just like scares the shit out of him to jack his <laughs> skateboard out. I of need it. a better means of transportation, even though I can teleport. All right. Yes, I just want to look badass in my chador and just like whoosh down the street. So yeah, give me your fucking thing. Let me terrify you for the rest well, of your life. Well, something that confused me is that you know the little boy. Now, at the very beginning of the film is kind of painted as this uh, poor beggar. But then right before that scene, it shows him like unwrapping a piece of candy or something like that and popping it into his mouth. And so like he has candy, he has a skateboard. And so it's like kind of made me think like, is am I supposed to think that he's not a beggar or that he was lying about the begging? I think so. Yeah. And then, you know, later on, um, once we get into Hossein's death, he is one of the eyewitnesses to the body being dumped and he's, you know, he's in a house. And so it's like, you know, a, a well-lit house at least. And so it's kind of, you know, once again, it's one of those kind of unanswered questions as to like, why is she approaching him and what is his true nature like? And if we're to believe that the girl is this kind of omnipresent uh, entity that knows the judge, jury and executioner. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we're just assuming that she's right and that this is a bad boy or that <laughs> she's just fucking hungry. And it's just like, give me a reason. Yeah. Fuck around and find out. Yeah. Bitch. And I need your skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> right. And she does like eat an unhoused man. Yeah. Yes. Later in the film. So it's kind of like, mm. you are not the more arbiter, yeah. right? right? I feel like that illusion gets shattered. I think that I just sort of read that young boy as, as maybe it was like an Aladdin situation, right? Like you remember early in that film, like he's, he's stealing fruit and, and bread to survive. Mm-hmm. I, I wondered if it was that sort of thing, like, you know, and, and then is he as bad off as he portrays himself or is he faking? Like you said, is he sort of faking the, the begging and, mm-hmm. and just enjoy stealing yeah. stuff, you know? And then, then that scene sort of becomes a cautionary situation for him, right? Like, straighten out, I'm watching you. You won't get any toys for Christmas. Right. <laughs> she doesn't care about him beyond that moment, but... <laughs> I will drain you as soon as you turn 18. It was at this point where I started kind of seeing the boy as more of a plot device than anything else. Yep. Because, mm-hmm. you know, not too long afterward we're met with Arash who's high as a fucking kite and she needs to get him from point A to point B. And he's like, oh, I, I can't get up. 
And she's like, all right, get on the skateboard. Let's go. And so it's kind of like, right. She needed to approach this boy so that she could get his skateboard so that it could serve as the vehicle to get a rush from this weird suburbia back to her house so that they can go listen to some, some dope soundtrack. Right. With the Bee Gees poster in the background. I needed to point that out. There's a Bee Gees poster. They haunt me. They haunt me. You know, and that's one of those things, too, where Amir Poor herself is a skateboarder, a lifelong skateboarder. Mm-hmm. And so it feels very much like this is the thing that I do. I wrote this film. I, I want to have this badass female vigilante ride a skateboard. But I don't want her to just have the skateboard. She needs to like earn it, but it doesn't feel earned the way with which yeah it happens. You're like yeah okay, and, and in a way that it like the first time I watched the movie, I didn't even realize that that had occurred somehow. Like it slipped past me, or or I I forgot it, you know. And then suddenly it was just she'd always had a skateboard, yeah. you know. That's how vampires work, right? They can yeah. make objects. It's just yeah. like a warlock, you know, casting find familiar, but their familiar is a skateboard. Now that is fucking amazing. Let's make that happen. That's some not another D&D podcast <laughs> stuff right there. Anyways, so our newly uh, drug-rich friend sells drugs and goes to the Halloween party that our little princess has previously In mentioned. a homemade Dracula costume. A Phenomenal homemade Dracula costume, I might ask. As somebody who's been Dracula many times for all of you. <laughs> well done. I love that costume. It is so good. And I guess he's just known as the one who has the Molly. Yeah. And she appears with a friend who is our director playing her one-bit role. Oh, wait, that was her? Yeah, her, the friend oh. of the princess is oh, that's... our director. A fun little thing. Okay, cool. Just like Tarantino. Yeah, 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 really, right? It starts to all <laughs> without the racism <laughs> or like, like the foot fetish. I think, yeah, less foot fetish. <laughs> hey, don't don't knock kinks. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, We're, this is a kink friendly f- podcast. Um, oh yeah, you know, but unless you're Tarantino, unless you're Tarantino. yeah, then, then yeah. we have issues with you. You are the enemy of the pod. Foot fetishes That's are fine. That's unless you're Quentin Tarantino, and then we have issues. <laughs> That's where we draw gross. the line. So. So the the thing that we should clarify is that the problem isn't the foot fetish. The problem is Quentin Tarantino. Yes. End of story. Okay. <laughs> yes. I'm going to change the description of this podcast to that line. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is, oh my God, we're going to keep finding a way to bring him up. We don't want to bring him up, but he keeps coming up. Go away. Yeah, anyways, and then somehow our princess convinces our main character to do some Molly. Oh my god, you know, it's like, have fun with <laughs> this, me. This thing is, it's so lonely without you. <laughs> Which was like... Yeah, that was a weird exchange. That's so peak, okay, I just need to fit in. I'll just, you know, <laughs> just throw everything away for it. Anything Whatever. for you, honey. Right. You know, it's right. like this weird role reversal thing, you know, which I know that uh, I'm a reporter has gone on record saying like, well, it's not a feminist film. I mean, if you want it to be a feminist film, then cool, but whatever. Um, it's kind of lends it to that reading or viewing of it where it's like, okay, here is our male protagonist fitting into this subordinate role, taking commands from this beautiful post nose job princess who <laughs> is holding all this power over him in so many ways. With the titties. 
She's also his boss. Well, technically, you know, she was his boss. That's true. That's a good he's point. A, he's a self-made man at this point because he found a uh, a suitcase with a hacky sack and some drugs and got and, dead drug dealers drugs. Yeah. But no, no duck hunt gun. He really made those drugs go far. Yeah. Too. <sighs> yeah. So what happens when you don't get high on your own supply. That's right. It's a it, it's a TARDIS briefcase full of drugs. <laughs> I also find it though like that's a really like shallow way to describe feminism, right? Like subjugation just flipped, and you're like, okay, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. That's that's another issue that I had with you know a lot of the commentary that I read. It's just like, oh, it's a feminist vampire spaghetti western. It's like, you know, is Oceans Eight just Oceans Eleven but feminist because it's a you know like a woman or female protagonist like no it it takes more than that and there is more to this film that could lend itself to a feminist viewing than just like oh here's some role reversal for you have fun but you know that alone i feel is a very very shallow way to get try to get towards that goal which people which major studios have done several times sigh Right, the all-female superhero scene in the last Marvel Avengers. This film is feminist in a 2014 kind of way, right? It came out at a time where having just that like role reversal sort of gender swap was enough for a lot of people to make it a feminist piece because that was not happening, right? And And we were not having conversations around feminism, for example, in the same way that we are having them now. And I think that's one reason why this film like really struck me the first time that I saw it, right, when it was really unlike anything that I had ever seen before, right? Mm-hmm. And now... Yeah, and you watched this a couple years after it came out, right? So it was probably kind of towards the height of, like, you know, the Women's March and, like, all this other stuff that was happening that right, right. then later gave rise to more people taking ownership of patriarchy and kind of the inherent issues that come with that. Whereas in 2014, 15, 16, it was like something that was there, but not necessarily something that people were doing as much with, I imagine. Yeah. And at that time, when you saw a woman in a traditionally male role, it was like how progressive, right? Yeah. You know, like, that's boundary pushing. And and I think that now, you know, now it comes with the conversation of, you know, it, it's not simply put a woman in that role. It's should this role even exist, right? Yeah. And like, is this role inherently terrible? Mm-hmm. That's where the conversation about gender politics comes out, which is another point too. Like the, the conversation, the broader conversation around gender politics has gotten more complex since mm-hmm. 2014. We have we have a a character in this film that doesn't get named but is referred to Rockabilly, Rockabilly who yeah. is like their purpose in the movie is to be an outside observer in the way that I think the kid actually ends up being. But and also the viewer in in a way too. Yeah. But they are not explored and they're only there very briefly and something about their presence to me felt kind of Tolkien, right? Like, Because it was like gender non-conforming and just like, but like, why? But it also was the only instance of any of those things really coming up, right? Like, right. Like, 
here is a character that is bucking gender norm. And that's important in Iranian filmmaking because doing that in Iran is not okay. And that was one reason that the the director talked about having that character, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Is because that's what makes them interesting because being gay in Iran is not okay. But outside of rockabilly, this is still a story about two cisgendered people having a sort of straight romance, right? It is still boy meets girl. And there aren't very many other things in the film that really sort of push that envelope. Yeah. Which kind of all crystallizes right after our highest fuck character gets sent back to her place and they linger, interact. There's a moment where it, oh, is she going to bite him? Oh, just kidding. We're going to just feel each other. And there's vague implication. They finally have sex or something, but like the scene and or set piece or interaction is we see rockabilly dancing with a balloon. Yeah, dancing with a balloon. Yeah, yeah, it cuts to yeah. the balloon flying over power lines. Right. And, and you're like, okay, this is a signifier of mood, like implication of freedom. And it happens during the day. Yes. Which is another thing, you know, this whole movie is so dark. So I watched it on my PC, and my monitor is so bright <laughs> that... I usually have to go into my settings and turn stuff down, like especially when I'm doing classwork or editing the pod or something like that. But I actually had to crank stuff up so I could actually see like some of like the little difference. Yeah, I'm just like, okay, is this an alley that Arash is going? Is that Arash? (laughs) You know, but there's all these things that like all these like little things that happen during the daytime that are really important. And that was one of them. And so I just got blasted with this blinding white light, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And then you're the vampire at that time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then at the same time, I was just like, Wait, what the fuck? What's going on? Yeah, it felt like a shoehorned in, like, some sort of device of, like, this is mood. This is, maybe the sex was good, right? Or, like, freedom, wee, something. Yeah. But, like, arbitrarily so. And it's one of only a handful of scenes that happen in the daylight, right? Yeah. Yes. When he finds the cat, was that? The very first scene, yeah, where he steals the cat. The very first day. Yeah, Mr. Cat, and then... uh, the dumping of uh, Saeed's body. Yeah. Which happens in the same bridge where the really like goofy polka music at the beginning kind of starts to go (laughs) and like really start to get sinister, which I thought was an interesting kind of parallel. Yeah. I I was waiting for him to like look down at his Walkman and find that the tape had like spooled out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, rewind the tape. (laughs) That, that would have been like if there was a uh, <laughs> there was like a Mel Brooks adaptation of this film. Like that's <laughs> that's where it would be. <laughs> Tapping his Walkman. What the? Yep. Huh? Yeah, I would watch that. Oh yeah, That'd be great, absolutely. Right? That'd be fun. He's still kicking it. Yeah, it could still happen. Yep. Dear Mel Brooks, <laughs> do we have an idea for you? Our finder's fee is fifteen percent. <laughs> And yeah, and then when we see um, uh, Arash's father, when his when his body's found, that scene happens during during the day yeah. as well, which like lends that light, right? Like that that brightness sort of programs us to feel like it is 
li- the, like the lifting of a burden for the characters. Yeah. And then also kind of like uh, this realization as well that, you know, like things are different, you know, things are illuminated, things are clearer, right? clearer, both like visually, but also clearer emotionally, kind of depending on like where you're looking at it, you know? Yeah, it's it's very multifaceted. And so like the use of light is like so vitally important in this film. And Mason, you and I were talking about this a little bit because I asked you, I was like, okay, was this shot on film? Because like it looked like it was shot on film. I don't know if you thought that, Sean. I don't know if you had that question. Yes, a little bit. But like it was so grainy and dark and broody and it just looked like somebody just like shot with no natural light and just cranked the ISO all the way up. And Everything was so, so dark, which helped lend so much mood and atmosphere and stuff to the film, but it also creates all these potential like metaphoric qualities too. You know, when you start looking at, for instance, the scene where the girl and Arash meet for the first time outside of Syed's home, you know, the way that uh, Amarpour shoots the girl through the bars versus rush through the bars he's always like obstructed or like you know the bars splitting him down the middle whereas the girl is in her face is always in complete view view mm-hmm. and so it's never obstructed and so there's you can see like all these like little decisions that Amarpour makes during the film specifically in regard to color and angle and cinematography and stuff and the choice of when to use light versus when to use you know the dark is just like really, really well done. Yes. And that's probably one of the things that I enjoyed the Absolutely. most about the film. Right. And, and as, as we were talking, like it, again, another connection to moonlight just sort of accidentally is it's shot in kind of a, a similar concept. It's digital, but it's shot through amorphic lenses in this case, you know, and, and black and white. And, and in this case, referencing like 1940s film noir, mm-hmm. right. It, you know, like, it's got Casablanca written all over it. Yeah. But, and and I had to, when you mentioned that, like, I I had realized that I was asking myself that um, through the, throughout the film. And, and so we had to go look it up and like, and, and find that because this, this movie also is one of those things where like, it is like, it's grainy and you have mm-hmm. that vignetting, but it is super clear in a way that digital only digital really can be. And so like for my technical brain, like I kept running into it of like what film stock would even be capable of shooting a film like this. Well, there isn't one, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, we we were talking about a a, a photographer that that we both know who had a sort of similar aesthetic to this. Yeah. And, and it reminded me too of like, I used to shoot when I shot film, um, I would shoot with Ilford uh, Delta 3200, mm-hmm. um, which is a, getting the weeds a little bit, it's a 1400 speed film that you process at 3200 speed. And so it, like you push it really far and it gets super grainy and super high contrast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but you can use it in really low light. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't do that with movie film, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like with that film stock. And so like, you know, but I, I was a little distracted the whole movie. Like, how did they, how did they even achieve this? Yeah. You know, and that's, it's interesting because the use of digital, to, but to mirror 
what we might see on film kind of lends itself to kind of this inability to pin it down. Like, is it a Western? Is it a vampire movie? Is it a love story? But also, is this taking place in the 80s? Is this taking place in the 40s? Is this taking place in the 60s? Or is it taking place in California or Tehran or Texas? Or, you know, like it it lends a lot of questions and uh, being unable to pin stuff like that down, I feel, or at least based on what I read, l- lends itself a lot to Amir Poor's upbringing, you know, being this Iranian American who was born in the UK and not necessarily fitting into one mold quite so perfectly. And so this film echoes that in a lot of ways, the same way that she also incorporates the skateboarding because it's a part of her life and so important right. to her. This idea of identity seems to be just as, as important of a theme to incorporate in this film. And I wanted to touch really quickly on the setting in particular. Um, so this, this film was shot in the city of Taft, which is 30 miles outside of Bakersfield, Mm -hmm. which is a part of California that to people outside of California does not look like California, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Like um, it is oil fields and high desert and like, you know, like no beaches, no surfboards, no palm trees, just inland wasteland. Mm -hmm. That's it. It could be anywhere in middle America. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, I think that that was definitely like a conscious choice. Um, yeah. But then anytime that you see a, a street sign or a stop sign, it's in Persian. Like it, there aren't any other than maybe businesses, right? There isn't like English text anywhere in it. And so that can sort of confuses where it is. Okay, well, now is it sort of, you know, was this shot somewhere in the Middle East? Was this shot in Iran? Um, is this an American film? Which is a question that has come up about it, right? Mm-hmm. And and I thought that that, I thought more than like, is this a feminist movie, right? Is this like a um, critique of American filmmaking, right? This is more of, this film through those decisions feels more like kind of a critique of um, assumed culture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, like, colonialization and... yeah. Yeah, definitely, and 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 our assumed sort of image of of what is where, right? It's sort of like when they use Vancouver as every right. city, you know, <laughs> a popular thing in in filmmaking. Yep, the the same sort of thing, right? Like if you don't, if you've never been to that part of California, it doesn't look like California. If you've been there, you know, if you've driven through it, it's like, oh yeah, that's the worst part of that drive. <laughs> And and I just thought like, yup, oil fields for days. Yeah, and especially like the last time I went through there was, it was what was it like 2017 or 2016? Whenever we were in a real bad drought in California, and so it we were, it was like, oh man, this is kind of like what I imagined the Dust Bowl would have looked like Shit. back in like the 30s because it was just like. Right driving and like you couldn't see the sun because of how much the wind has just taken up all the earth and stuff it was absolutely wild but the drive back at night was really awesome because the stars were plenty it's gorgeous out there when it's dark 
Yeah. Right. But if you don't have that like <laughs> frame of reference, then this could, you know, have been shot in somewhere in the Middle East. Yeah. Right. Like, um, and, and I feel like that was maybe kind of the point, um, which is really genius mm-hmm. in, oh, yeah. in a lot of ways, you know, cause California is so iconic Yeah. that when you find a part of California that is not iconic, it becomes clear how big the state actually is. There's so much that, um, that is not LA and San Francisco. Absolutely. And, um, the setting there and kind of, I know that there's a lot of like shots that focus on the oil pumps and, uh, the kind of industrialization and the power plants and stuff, you know, like that's one of the meeting places that the, the girl and Arash have is like at a power plant late at night. And it's kind of this idea of fuel and consumption. And, you know, that's kind of a part of being a vampire is they need to feed and it's kind of like this parasitic thing. And then there's also this commentary of, you know, needing to mine natural resources in order to make this happen and stuff and kind of the ethical conundrums that come up with that. And also does that make vampires inherently bad because they need to do this to survive? And, you know, there's definitely more that can be read into with that. Right. And it's also a shorthand for the Middle East, right? Especially how the West mm-hmm. views and commodifies the Middle East. Yep. And like the the scene before we get to that scene where the girl meets the hooker and kind of they have a, a moment to meet. It, it, like, that's where it like, I guess, feels not feminist to me or it feels like weirdly judgy. Because the hooker's like, if you want to be like me, you know, I'm not willing to teach you. And then what have you, like, seen as you've observed me? And then the girl just talks about, you're just so lonely. You, like, don't know where you're going with your life. Yada, yada, yada. It feels Mm -hmm. like this weird, like, hookers are bad and don't have direction in their lives. But because I have agency over myself, I'm good. It feels a little bit like that. And it feels a little like, well, okay. And it also that whole conversation happens after Ati the after the prostitute keys the car. Right. That's how the trigger. And so for me, yeah. And so for me, I had this tension kind of like during their entire conversation. It's just like, oh She's hell, gonna eat you like, for love. Yep. <laughs> yep. It's just like where where's the girl's line for what constitutes like. And of course, we kind of run into that question as well whenever the girl feeds on the the homeless man. It's just like, okay, what's her line for what meets the criteria for her to label somebody as bad enough to to, to feed right. on them? Yeah. Yeah. And and it's tough too because that moment where um where Ati keys the car is like her strongest moment of um sort of self-authority, mm-hmm. right? Every other moment she is under the power of somebody else, including both scenes that she's, you know, with the girl yeah. and she ends up being our woman in distress, right? Our damsel in distress. Um, when, when the girl has to come in and save the day and, and save the day and, and ultimately kills Arash's father, you know, it is to save the only other female character in the film. Yeah. Which that has significance, right? Yeah. Also. Yeah. But it also sort of disrupts that argument of this being a feminist picture, too, right? Because, you know, can it be feminist if only one female character has authority over themselves? And, like, the handling 
or lack thereof of care in handling the idea of a sex worker, really. It feels like a moralist decide of good and bad of woman, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, yeah, we we get that their, their meet-cute scene <laughs> or their date where he, I guess, gives her the earrings he stole and she's like, put them in. He's like, but your ears aren't pierced. Yeah. Well, she said, well, then blink. Now do the other one. Yeah. Do it. Do it, I say. And he's like, okay, the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> and then she says a line that it feels like satire. I've done bad things. I've done, you don't know the bad things I've done, which is like, yep. almost a send up, but also like, really? <laughs> which he then replies, she says, you don't know the things that I've done. And he says, you don't know the things I've done. And that felt yes weirdly genuine to me mm-hmm. in that, like, I remember being 17 and, like, you know, it's, and, uh, having the, like, overly dramatic conversations you have when you're 17 and somebody being like, you don't know the things I've <laughs> done. And, and you trying to impress them, you're kind of like, well, you don't know what I've done. And neither of you have done shit, <laughs> you know. Um, and that's sort of the comedy of the situation. He feels very much he's obviously doing that and and he like you know is it because he's now a hotshot drug dealer because he came across a briefcase of someone that with she murdered in it? right <laughs> yeah. right it's this loaded scene that i think is weirdly played for comedy yes because he also has that like big monologue of um if a storm came over those mountains you know would it matter at which point she just walks away from him. <laughs> She's like, oh, no, I don't fuck with this shit. I've been alive too long. Yeet. And also during this scene, this is kind of a running thing where these perceptively good characters or characters that don't fall under her bad intentions offer her food. Yes. Ati offers her what looks like a plum. He offers her, Arash offers her a hamburger. And it's like, what the fuck? You don't like hamburgers? I don't know anybody who doesn't like hamburgers. Whatever. And I just found that to be really interesting that that was something that even though they, Ati and Arash never really meet, that's something that they kind of share in common with her as well as, yes. you know, kind of offering her this kindness, offering her the sustenance, even though she's like, what, what the fuck do I do with this? This isn't blood. Yeah. Is this hamburger made out of man? <laughs> Not yet. And then the third act kicks in, which is, yeah, yeah, we get, like, a weird set ending. Um, his, his dad has withdrawals to the point he deludes that the cat is, is the dead wife. Mm-hmm. Poor Mr. Cat. Yeah. I know. I felt so bad for that cat and that, you know, because it really gets thrown around and... Right, it gets stolen to begin with, and then it becomes the the observer of much terrible things. Yeah, and it's a cute cat. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though, because like you know, that cat is very much the way that like the skateboard serves as like the necessary means for uh, a rush to make his way to the girl's a home or apartment for the first time, Mr. Cat winds up being the connective tissue between all of the characters and eventually serves as the kind of ultimate conundrum that Arash must kind of reckon with at the end. Mm -hmm. How did we feel about that? Because I, I don't know if it was just because I expected it, you know, part of me was waiting for him to, 
see the cat, make the connection, and abandon mm-hmm. her. You know, like, oh shit, my dad wasn't great, but you killed my dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Or even just bring it up. But it never gets mentioned. You 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 get the scene which tells you, right, he sees the cat, you get the sort of knowing eye contact, mm-hmm. and the cat goes with them. The ending shot is the three of them, you know, framed in the windshield of and the car. And the cat just looking between the two of them, which I thought was really great. <laughs> so Best good. acting in the film. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Masuka. Oh, yeah. My favorite. <laughs> but, yeah, like, I was... I found myself kind of weirdly unsatisfied with the, just the fact that that was not, and I don't know what I w- would have wanted from it, you know, but it's like, it's somehow his acknowledgement of you have freed me. And uh, this is my thanks to you for that. But then right. His dad, his dad's death is like a loaded one because he ostensibly kicks his dad out which is essentially a death sentence here. Here's a bunch of bills. Go go do some drugs and die, essentially, without maybe not directly intending it, but he's kicked his dad out, who is in mm-hmm. no shape to be left without support. And then the end, then are through machinations of drugs and vampire sick senses, the girl kills the dad. And at first, it seems like our main character is upset understandably about his dad's death and demands from the little boy who apparently witnesses the, our moral arbiter who did it tell me but you know because she scared the living shit and stole the boy's skateboard i don't know i don't know who did it i'm trying to be good yeah <laughs> like the fuck okay okay sure and it inspires him to leave as a romantic would. Nothing has nothing binds me to this terrible city, quite literally. Let, run away with me. Right. A Romeo and Juliet without the fake suicide, fake suicide. Yeah. yeah. Suicide, Instead, suicide. they just murder all the Montagues and Capulets and said, yeah. let's fucking go! I might have enjoyed that play. <laughs> um, right. I, like, I'm, I'm realizing, as you sort of laid it out, that maybe my real issue is that like so many things in this film, the father is a foil. Right. Right. And we don't really, we don't understand the relationship between him and his son in any way, you know, and, and, and we don't understand him. You know, he is, we are told that he's a bad guy mm-hmm. and. Cause he's a drug addict. Right. And, and because he's eventually um, mistreats Ati and, you know, abuses her at the end of the film which is his death sentence, but he is that bad guy without uh, a drive. We don't, we don't know, you know, we're left to sort of fill in those blanks. And, and I, I wonder too, like, is that a result of in 2014, you could still write a story where a drug addict could just be a bad drug addict. And our conversation about that has developed to an obvious place where like, that comes from somewhere and these people aren't inherently bad, right. you know, like it, it's just, it's like a really shallow moralism, right? Because yeah. right. It was already mentioned. The girl is just determining who is bad and good. And the, the dad becomes bad the moment he affects someone else in a negative way, but also it's implied he had it coming in some sort of way, mm-hmm. but it just feels like a, the, like with all these foils serving as just vague plot devices for our main two characters, it all feels like 
quick snap decisions that we're supposed to go along with, which is where like the movie crumbles and loses its kind of its vibrancy because it is at both a parody of life, but then supposed to feel real. And then all these characters, but these characters feel incredibly shallow and or like we're forced to see them in a certain way without any real reason of needing to feel so. I kind of had a different interpretation of uh, Hussein's death because prior to his death, we have the girl feeding on the homeless man. And that's kind of the point where I started to really question her as morality. Right? Yeah. Her judge as judge, jury and executioner, um, you know, at first her actions seem noble in a lot of ways. And then things start getting questionable. Like, is she a reliable person or entity to be making these decisions. And then with the death of Hussein, it's like, okay, he did a bad thing, but I was sitting there questioning, like, are her actions just right? And that kind of helps to build the tension at the end when we have all these realizations of like, you know, Arash sees Mr. Cat. Does he know what she did? And then there's shot of the jewelry. Does he know that she's the one that killed uh, Syed? And that's also, I think, probably like, and she puts on the hood before they leave. And that's kind of like the cement. It's just like, okay, she, this, the girl is, might be the person that Arash saw leave the apartment of Syed that day. And so there's all of a sudden we're faced with like, as the viewer, we're kind of being forced to be put on the fence of just like, do we side with the rush or do we side with the girl and who is being, who is on the right here? And you know, th- nobody's on the right. And that's kind of like, you know, this moral ambiguity that all these characters face is just, you know, you have Ati who isn't perfect. You have Arash who isn't perfect. You have Hussein isn't perfect. The girl isn't perfect. And at the end, when you have Arash pacing in front of the car and then he gets in and you have this long shot where like nothing's happening, it kind of mirrors the shot when they first meet and mm-hmm. Arash is brought back to her apartment where he shows his neck and there's just this long pause where the viewer is kind of sitting there just like, oh, what's what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And it subverts kind of the expectation a little bit. It's just like, oh, she's going to buy him. No, she doesn't. And then it kind of, at the end, it's like, oh, he's going to leave. He's going to try to seek vengeance for his father or something like that, but then he doesn't. And I find that that parallel, which is something that uh, Amarpour does a lot where something's featured earlier in the film and then it's mirrored by another character later on in the film or in another uh, incident later on in the film, found that to be really important and i don't think i was as surprised in the way that it ended up i wasn't satisfied but i don't think i was surprised i think that's the bigger question there yeah i i i'm right there you know it's not satisfying i think that was what Mm -hmm. i was feeling but we have a story of where everyone is the narrator and they're all unreliable (laughs) yep except the cat (laughs) so here we are what seven years out from when this film was made. It was at the time sort of lauded as this, among many things, a sort of feminist take on a number of filmmaking tropes. 
certainly that is how I was introduced to it. And that is how I sort of understood it going in the first time I watched it and how, and what I've kind of grappled with since watching it the first time and now going into watching it now. So it, I think it raises a, an interesting question about issues in the arts like feminism, for example, here of if this film, if the the person who wrote it and directed it says that it's not feminist, that you are allowed to to read it that way, but that was not her intent. And if seven years down the road, you watch it again and it doesn't terribly feel feminist, you know, just taken at, at face value, it raises this interesting question of, well, was it ever feminist or just is that just how we read into it? And And what does that say for the way that our reading of of these sort of political issues changes over the years right can can something that was once feminist still be feminist even if our understanding of that word and of things that are feminist changes right mm-hmm. and and what implication does that have for for things moving forward right our understanding of feminism now is very different than it was when the suffragists were calling for the right to vote right and it's very different than our our parents, you know, and and feminist movements in the 1970s, and and it's very different now than it was in just 2014. Yeah, I mean, it's not not feminist. <laughs> I mean, you could say that. Maybe that's enough. Yeah. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?